The Lifestylist, episode 23, featuring Rich Roll. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. The sound that's vibrating your eardrums right now is the voice of Luke Story from LukeStory.com, and I'm here to deliver unto you another fantastic episode of the Lifestylist Podcast featuring today's guest, Rich Roll. And I got to say, this was one of the most meaningful interviews that I've had the opportunity to do on this show. I found Rich to just be such an authentic, kind, open, real guy. And where I live in Hollywood, y'all, that tends to be exceedingly rare. So it was a real treat to sit down and talk to him about how he got to where he is now. If you're not familiar with Rich, he's a huge podcaster, author, very successful, high-performing guy. But it wasn't always that way, which is what we talk about. So... We really go into his history as an alcoholic and how he hit bottom and the stages of his recovery and sobriety, which of course I relate to on a personal level in a very deep and meaningful way. And we talk about just turning your personal tragedy into transformation and eventually, um, in his case, turning that into a business and a brand and everything that he's doing and how you can do that in an ethical, transparent way and not be a cheesy money-grubbing marketing person. We talk, of course, about health and diet fads and all the extremism therein, Rich's personal morning routine of prayer and meditation, and really just how to live a spiritual life in the real world. How can you be a yogi? How can you be a sage, a mystic, but still own a business, still live in a city, stay healthy mentally, emotionally, physically, have a family, like have a real life, but have more meaning and purpose to your life. So I'm so grateful to be able to bring this interview to you, and I can't wait to get your feedback on this one. Enjoy. What is up, fam? If you heard last week's episode with David Wolf, you've already heard this announcement and hopefully already RSVP'd if you're going to be in LA. But my friend Tony Wright and I are hosting a free event next Thursday, September 22nd, to kick off the fourth annual Bulletproof Conference here in LA. So you get to come down and see me record a live podcast as a guest on Tony's show, Zestology. Now, of course, one of the main reasons for coming is to meet lots of other like-minded people, many of whom will be gathered in LA for the conference, which starts the very next morning. So to RSVP, just go to my Facebook page, at Mr. Luke Story, and you're going to see tons of posts about the event. It'll be easy to find. It's totally free, but it's a really small space, so please RSVP. If it's not full by the time this aired, which if it is, by the way, I I apologize in advance, but it's definitely going to fill up. I'm recording this a week before, so I don't know if it's going to be there. You know how it goes. So come down and watch a live podcast recording. Meet me and tons of other amazing people on Thursday, September 22nd at 7 p.m. at the Bulletproof Coffee Shop in downtown LA. So again, go to my Facebook page at Mr. Luke Story to find all of the info and the meetup.com RSVP link. See you there. Before we jump into this heartfelt and truly epic interview with Rich Roll, I want to invite you to enter my listener contest. The contest is to celebrate the first 23 episodes of the Lifestylist podcast, and to enter is so easy, you guys. All you have to do is go to lukestory.com forward slash winner and enter your name and email. It takes 
under two minutes. Super easy. Why would you want to do that? Because if you win, homie, you're going to be super stoked. This prize has two parts. First part is you get a one-hour lifestyle design session with me where I work one-on-one with you in person in LA or over Skype remotely, and you tell me your goals, and we work out how to design the ultimate lifestyle for you. So you might want more energy, focus, to lose weight, improve your mood. We can talk about meditation, food, diet, sleep, detoxing your home. All the stuff that we geek out on in this show can be yours via a coaching session with yours truly. The second half of the prize is a one-month supply starter kit of my custom Bulletproof Coffee recipe valued at over $140. So this contains the Bulletproof Coffee, the brand new Bulletproof Ghee, Brain Octane Oil, Bulletproof Collagen, and then I also threw in the Four Sigmatic Rishi Mushroom Elixir for those of you that don't tolerate caffeine. Now me personally, I use the Mushroom Elixir in the coffee. It's the most fantastic recipe ever. But you can also make the drink without caffeine. Just leave the coffee out, give that to a friend, they'll love you forever, and just use the Four Sigmatic Rishi Mushroom Elixir. And you've got an amazingly powerful morning tonic drink that will give you tons of energy And it just happens to be really delicious. So you get the coaching session with me, and you also get a month's supply of the Bulletproof Coffee recipe. And all you have to do is so easy is go to lukestory.com forward slash winner and enter your name and email. And the catch here is that you have to do it by Monday, September 19th. And I can't wait to announce the winner on Wednesday, September 21st. You only have a little bit of time. Get over to lukestory.com forward slash winner enter your name and email, and you might just win this puppy. Good luck. Are you a super fan of the Lifestylist podcast or perhaps even just a new listener that's enthusiastic about the first couple episodes you've heard? Well, now you can show your support by going to lukestory.com forward slash support and making a small or even a large contribution. It takes an army of people and hours and hours and hundreds of dollars to produce this show every month, so anything you can do to help would be greatly appreciated. And if your support is just continuing to listen and share this show with your friends, that's great too. But if you feel like doing a little something extra, I ain't mad at that. Again, you can go to lukestory.com forward slash support and make a pledge. Thank you. As a graduate of Stanford University and Cornell Law School, Rich Roll is a 49-year-old accomplished vegan ultra-endurance athlete and former entertainment attorney turned full-time wellness and plant-based nutrition advocate, motivational speaker, husband, father of four, and an inspiration to people worldwide as a transformative example of courageous and healthy living. In 2012, Rich became a number one best-selling author with the publication of his inspirational memoir, Finding Ultra, Rejecting Middle Age, Becoming One of the World's Fittest Men, and Discovering Myself. Taking up where the book leaves off, in 2013, Rich launched the wildly popular Rich Roll podcast, which persistently sits atop the iTunes Top 10 list. Rich's plant-fueled feats of boundary-pushing athleticism have been featured on CNN and on the pages of the Los Angeles Times Sunday Magazine, The Huffington Post, Men's Health Living, Outside, and Men's Fitness Magazine, which named Rich as one of the 25 fittest men in the world. Welcome to The Lifestylist, Rich. So good to be here, man. Yeah. Uh, we just actually did like a whole podcast that we didn't record that's kind of dude, that's, room, but uh <laughs> that's totally how it goes when we do recordings here at the house because the first you know it's the first time we're meeting which is strange as we discuss because we know a lot of the same people and travel in many of the same circles but i'll have like 
a pre-interview kind of in the living room before we come into the studio room. And I always say the same thing, God, we should be recording this because you can never quite replicate that. But I have this, uh, this like fantasy, I've said this before, but I have this like fantasy that when I do my podcast, like I wanna be like sitting, you know, behind the mic ready to go and the guest just comes in and sits down. So it's like immediate and completely fresh, you know, there's no rehashing of anything, but that never happens. And it's like, you have to talk to somebody at a time a little bit, you know, you can't just like force them to sit down that's and go funny. immediately into recording. Dude, that's funny. Cause I was um, listening to a show the other day and uh, a friend, Neil Strauss was the guest. I'm kind of, mm. I wish I could remember the name of the show. It's this girl, eh, she does like dating advice and stuff like that. I just listened to it cause it was Neil's interview, but that's what she does. She actually has the mics live and then the guest walks in and you hear them like setting their keys down right, and stuff and like, she yeah it's already recording from the moment they walk in a uh-huh. door and and at first uh, i was like god that's really why don't you edit it you know i was like that's kind of lowbrow but there's something really value. natural and honest about that I, too well that's what you yeah know? that's what i actually ended yeah. up getting out of it it was cool because you hear them kind of you know making small talk for a second and there's awkward things happening because people are bumping into stuff and mm. It was sort of uh, oddly authentic in that way. Yeah, Nerdist does that as well. You know what? She's on their like little network or something. Oh, right. Okay, cool. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's the that's the Nerdist vibe. Oh, okay, cool. The Nerdist network vibe. I don't know, but Neil's great. Yeah, you know? yeah, cool. So yeah, that's funny. Well, maybe I'll start doing that. I'll just like leave the front door open, give the guest directions and say, just yeah. wander down the hall until you Have see microphones. usher them in. There's, you know, there's something weird about that too that doesn't feel quite right. So I don't know how to solve that equation. Well, cool. So we'll, we'll see what we can do to keep it spontaneous. So what's new with you, man? What, um, what, what's an exciting project that you've got coming up? What's on the horizon? Mm, got a lot of stuff going on right now. Uh, a bunch of travel. I've been traveling quite a bit, a bunch of speaking engagements and the like. Uh, my wife and I are putting on a retreat in Italy the first week of, of October. I saw that on um, your site. Yeah, so we're kind of gearing up for that right now. Pretty excited about that. We did our first one uh, in May in Tuscany, and we're going back to the same location. This is an incredible villa about halfway between Florence and Siena. Uh, we're taking 40 people there for seven days of transformation. It's going to be wow, amazing. Wow, yeah. 40 people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everyone's staying on the premises. Yeah, it's a it's a borgo. It's it's sort of a working farm, but um, it can uh, handle that many people. Like we basically take over the whole place, uh, and we have you know amazing food and yoga and meditation and trail running, and we have workshops on creativity and relationships and you know f- you know like cooking and all sorts of things. So yeah, it's pretty special. That's fantastic. Yeah, that sounds very cool. I, I like the that idea of doing retreats that are a full immersion because I'm a huge like seminar and boot camp kind of junkie. I'm, mm-hmm. I mean, I go to all of the health seminars and all that stuff, but I'm always bummed out because you're under like LED lighting. It's always in a cheesy hotel with horrible carpeting. <laughs> you right. know, it's like the environment sucks for learning and inspiration, but it's like, that's where all the great minds are gathered. And I always, you know, really vibe on the audience, like the Longevity Now conference where right. I first um, saw you a couple of years ago in the Bulletproof Conference and things like that. But uh, last year, I actually went out to a retreat with my friend Daniel Vitalis, who did one at the Omega Center in upstate New York. And dude, we're swimming in the lake, the frozen lake every night. We're taking saunas. And you know, there's lectures throughout the day and we're learning, but we're out in nature and there's a movement practice every morning. And it was like, ah, uh-huh, this is how you do it. So yeah. I think that sounds amazing. Yeah, it's uh, it makes a big difference, you know? 
I've spoken at so many events where, yeah, you're in a ballroom in a hotel in some nondescript, you know, area or whatever. And it is like a very sterile, weird environment. And I understand the economics kind of drive that, like, because of course, everybody would like to be in a beautiful, you know, nature setting. So it drives the price up of some of these events. Um, but location is very important, right? The setting and all of that, especially if you're going for self-help or some form of, you know, transformative experience, that that makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for people uh, like myself that didn't do well in a traditional school setting, that having a more interactive environment and having an experiential type learning thing is much more effective. It sinks in more. Right, than sitting there taking notes, listening to somebody lecture to you. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, dude. Now when I go to these conferences, I just end up running around the whole time and kind of hanging out with people mm-hmm. and networking and just getting caught up in the vibe of the of the um, the energy and the, the people that are in the space, not even hearing the speakers necessarily. I'm like, you know what? I'll just go on YouTube later and hear the speaker. I just want to have the experience, but then and why are we doing it in a hotel, you know? Mm-hmm. So cool. Good for you. That sounds awesome. I'd like to do something like that myself someday, you know, go to Hawaii and teach people how to collect spring water and do cold plunges and whatever, you know, it's like actually doing something with a group of people. That's cool. You should do that. Yeah. Thank you. I thank you. I'm inspired. Uh-huh. So that sounds cool. So for those of us, um, you know, people listening that don't know exactly where you come from, what your vibe is. I know a bit about your history. I've listened to your amazing podcast, by the way. Folks, you need to subscribe to his show. Really, really great content. So I think we we share a lot of common history of being guys that were living a very unhealthy lifestyle and were very unhappy and ended up turning it around and now are shining examples of yeah. you know health, <laughs> wellness, and recovery. What was what's the you know the bullet pointed story of of how you went from uh, being a sad sap to being this awesome, inspiring guy? <sighs> Let's see. Uh, well, there's a couple chapters in this in this novel, I suppose. But um, you know, I grew up in Washington D.C. I have two parents that are still married. All my needs were met. I you know I, I never wanted for anything growing up. Um, I was a swimmer in high school and in college. Uh, I left Washington DC to go to California for for university, Uh, swam in college. And that's when I discovered the miraculous uh, healing effects of alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) I was a goody two shoes in high school. Like all I did was I went to like a prep school. I wore a tie every day to school and I just studied really hard. And I was up every morning at 4.45 to go to swim practice, two hours of swimming or an hour and a half or whatever, school, swim practice after school, uh, homework and bed by nine, like every day. Like I never got in trouble. I never, you know, sort of, you know, went wayward at all. Never sowed any kind of crazy wild oats in high school. But then when I got to college and I'm in California, I just went, you know, hog wild. And, you know, I was a kid who is uh, a pretty sensitive kid, you know, insecure, um, you know, definitely one of those kids who felt like everybody else had the rule book for life that I lacked. And, you know, never felt comfortable at a party, like just, you know, not antisocial, but just like a nervous ball of energy, right? And when I, I still remember the first time that I got drunk and it was like the miracle salve to every problem that I didn't know that I had, right? And it worked for a long time. Like it, it actually, you know, looking back on it, it allowed me to be a social animal in a way that I never had been able to before. And I loved it for a long time. Like I, you know, I became like a very 
um, in, you know, somebody who could engage people and you know started to feel better about who I was and all of that. But as you know, you know, it works until it doesn't. And it didn't take that long before you know I started experiencing the negative impacts of you know basically, for lack of a better word, like being a drunk. You know, even in college, in the early days of my drinking, you know, I was the guy who was the last one to leave the party. And when the keg ran out, I'm running around drinking, you know, half empties <laughs> with cigarette butts in them, and and I'm the guy making an idiot of himself, and then you know throwing up in front of people and like all that kind of stuff that you hear about, right? Uh, but none of that actually had any impact on me, you know, mending any of my errant ways. It just progressed and got worse and worse and worse. You know, I moved to New York City and that's like Disneyland for alcoholics. You can you can walk around with it, you know, a can of beer in your hands. Like I was drunk all the time. You know, it was like an, I had an amazing time, but you know, that's where my alcoholism really progressed and somehow I ended up getting into law school and looking back on that, I have no idea how I graduated from law school because I was a, a wreck. Uh, moved to San Francisco, was a lawyer, and uh, and was able to kind of get away with my drinking for a while. But I moved to Los Angeles for a job, and uh, very quickly uh, the cops started getting involved in my exploits and got two DUIs in two months and rear-ended an elderly woman at the intersection of uh, Crescent Heights and Melrose at three in the morning, right up the street, <laughs> right up the street here. And you know, two months after that. I uh, got pulled over going the wrong way down a one-way street in Beverly Hills. And the arresting officer actually knew my boss, the partner in the law firm where I was working because he was representing the Beverly Hills PD. And I thought I was getting fired. And like, you know, it was all it was all becoming pretty disastrous pretty quickly. I had a marriage that went left. On, I mean, all kinds of crazy chaos that happens when you're a good alcoholic. Um, but I ended up getting sober at 31. I went to rehab up in Oregon. And, you know, I thought I was just going to go spin dry for a couple of weeks, but I ended up staying for a hundred days, which is a long time to be in rehab, you know, and I consider myself to be a pretty smart guy. Like I went to Stanford, I have a law degree from Cornell, but like all of my best ideas, my best thinking literally got me institutionalized, you know, rehabs are mental institutions. Like you're there because your ideas are leading your life astray, right? But that was an experience that saved my life, you know, and it gave me a new toolbox for how to live. Uh, and I took that toolbox out into the world. And for the next 10 years, I was very intent on repairing all the wreckage that I had created as a result of my drinking and using. So translation, you know, I became kind of a workaholic. Like I was a guy who, you know, I just, I was a, I was a liar. I couldn't be, you know, counted on to show up. You know, my family, I was alienated from my friends and my family. I was unemployable. I was, you know, teetering on homelessness, sleeping on a bare mattress on the floor of a shitty apartment. You know, it was not a good picture, right? So in contrast to how I was raised, like I was kind of the golden boy, you know, I was this champion swimmer and I was, you know, getting great grades and I got into every, I got into Harvard and Princeton and Stanford, like all the school, like I was the kid that your parents, you know, would want to have, right? And I destroyed all that. So when I finally got sober, I was like, I need to get back to that place. And I worked very hard to, you know, rebuild my life. And I was successful in that because of the principles of recovery and, and the fact that I prioritized my sobriety above everything else. You know, fast forward to 39 years old and I'm, you know, on the partnership track at a very prestigious Los Angeles law firm. I had all the trappings of, you know, the American dream. I was driving a Porsche, I'd met my wife. Like it all looked good from the outside looking in, but what I had not yet, begun to address was this interior spiritual malaise that was still kind of malignant in my life, right? And what I mean by that is, 
you know, I was living this life because I thought that was what society wanted of me. You know, I was seeking approval like from my parents and from culture. Like if I do all these things, then I'll be, you know, looked upon with respect. And at the same time, of course, implicit in that is this promise, uh, you know, inherent in the American dream that this is what's gonna make you happy, right? I had a good salary, I had a nice place to live. I had, you know, like all of those things, you could check all the boxes. And yet on the inside, I was like dying, you know, like I was very unhappy in my career path, uh, but I felt trapped. I'm like, I've put so much energy, I've devoted, you know, the gravamen of my adult life into building this thing that I don't even want. And, you know, it was like, why did it not occur to me to actually check myself and say, you know, what makes me happy? Like that was never part of my life equation. It was just get on this track and do what you're supposed to do. And I can recall like looking around the law firm at these partners that were all ballers and, you know, making mad cash and working on like really sexy cases because we're in Hollywood, right? Uh, And just thinking like, I don't aspire to be any of these people. Like I don't, they're not necessarily bad people, but like I didn't want their life. And I knew as I rose up that chain that the pressure and the responsibility was only gonna increase and my investment in this life that was really at odds with who I was as a person was going to was just going to get worse right so so I was having this existential crisis meanwhile I wasn't taking care of myself like I was you know eating fast food I was a junk food junkie right just eat there's garbage in all the time and I wasn't exercising even I though I'd been the swimmer like I was very uh, distanced from really taking care of myself physically so I'd put on 50 pounds, classic couch potato, you know, hurtling into middle age on a crash course with lifestyle disease, essentially. And this all kind of came to, head, to a head um, shortly before I turned 40, when I had a moment walking up a simple flight of stairs at my house. And, you know, I had to pause, like I was out of breath, winded, sweat on my brow, you know, tightness in my chest. And it all kind of crystallized for me there. Like I really was afraid that I was on the verge of having a heart attack. And I realized like I really needed to course correct how I was living. And it was, I think I was able to recognize the heightened aspect of that moment because I had had that experience of waking up and saying, today's the day I'm gonna go to rehab. You know, like that day that you wake up and you're like, I'm gonna get sober today. And to be able to look back on that nine years and see how much my life had changed or eight years and you know, how, how drastically and radically my life had improved as a result of that one decision. I realized I was facing another decision that held that same potential if I took it seriously and compelled myself to act in a very specific way. So that was the beginning of my kind of, uh, you know, launch into <laughs> kind of the things that I do now, which was never my intention. You know, the, I thought I was just gonna get healthy and be a better lawyer. And I've hence gone on to, on this crazy journey of, uh, you know, exploring the physical aspect of how I live and now advocating for that. But essentially it began with, you know, me just trying to figure out how I was going to get healthier without any regard for, you know, ever becoming an athlete again or any of the things that I've done since. You know what? I, that was a much longer answer. Than no, I it's, like, no, dude, it was, it was actually, <laughs> yeah. it was totally on point. There's just so many, uh, there's so many parts there that I want to unpack, but I want to say one thing I dig about you, dude, is that you know, you're in a position in the industry in health and wellness, right? Where people look up to you and you're a thought leader and you produce great content. You've got your podcast, you do this public speaking, but you're part of the new guard. And and I like to think that I'm following in your footsteps and that you are 
real about the journey. In other words, you have one type of person who's a guru and they're like, I used to be like this and now I've made it. And you can be like me if you buy my 10 point program and all mm-hmm. that, you know, <laughs> we're having upsells in the back at the break, you know, like that whole kind of model, which is great. And I've learned a lot from those people, but I like your realness and your vulnerability. Like you're going back talking about things that, you know, I, I know that I relate to on so many levels because I'm also a recovering alcoholic, drug addict, the whole thing. But I think the value in 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 your story there, and it didn't meander to me at all, is that it's like we're in a place in in culture now and in media now where we can be more transparent and more honest about it. Those of us that have the courage to do that, and I appreciate that. You know, it's like it's cool that that you come out and and you're able to be totally authentic about the person that you were and the person that you are, which we're gonna hopefully get into. So I just wanted to say that kudos on having Thanks, the man. courage. And it's an inspiration too, because when I started, you know, putting out my show and stuff, as I was telling you earlier, it was like I really wrestled with how real I wanted to be. And of course, in the beginning, I mean, you know. I don't even know how many people are ever going to hear my podcast or get into the content that I'm putting out. But once it's out, it's out. So mm-hmm. I had to make a real decision. Like how, Forever. how honest do I want to be? How real do I want to be? You know, so I, I, I applaud you for that and I appreciate that. But going back, I want to just unpack the story a little bit because you said something very interesting in regard to your upbringing and your childhood long before you started drinking. And that's those feelings of not fitting in and feeling uncomfortable in your skin and just feeling awkward. And every word you said, I totally related to, with the exception that you said your parents were you know, healthy and supportive and, and gave you a lot of love. And this has been a strange thing that I've observed in the years that I've been sober and meeting so many uh, recovering alcoholics and addicts is that most of us have experienced some pretty severe trauma. And and for me, it was like the trauma was around five, six years old. I immediately went off the deep end with my behavior and just went nuts. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was like you could mark on a calendar the day that I experienced some abuse and then whoosh, I just started going crazy. But then I meet people that are like, no, both my parents love me. We live in the suburbs. We had money. They hugged me. They told me they cared about me. They were supportive. They believed in me. And yet, I, you know, that person had experienced the same sort of feelings of separation and and that sort of abject loneliness. You know, the way I describe it, it's just like <laughs> it's lonelier than lonely. You know, it's like yeah. you're in school and there's 30 kids in your classroom and you feel like you're deserted out in space somewhere on a on a distant moon. You know. So I, I wonder if you've ever, you know, looked at that in yourself. Like, where did that dis-ease and that the need to drink come from if if nothing, you know, quote unquote bad ever happened to you? Have you ever looked into that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I do. And I have some ideas about that, that I'm, that I'm happy to share. Uh, but I would, I would temper that by saying, and, and I'm sure you've heard this many times, that that look in the rear view mirror, at least with respect to like alcoholism is sort of a, not a fool's errand, but you can kind of chase that forever. Like, why does this happen? Why, you know, what, how did this, how could this have happened? Like trying to solve that actually isn't that helpful in terms of how you're gonna behave today and tomorrow. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So it's about focusing on like, okay, here we are now, like how can I make a better choice? But yeah, to understand your background I think is good, but I think to invest too much of yourself in that, I think is to be myopic about what's in front of you right now. But with that being said, I think that 
you know, I was wired to be kind of a, a, like a little bit of a loner kid. And, you know, like I said, just innately, you know, kind of sensitive. I was like arty, I had difficulty making friends and all of that. But also, you know, my parents, like I said, took care of me and you know, never wanted for anything. We always, you know, had food on the table and they both were gainfully employed and all of that. But there was also, there was, there was a sort of subtle and maybe at times not so subtle uh, pressure to achieve. Like it was a very academic education focused household and there was expectations to live up to. And by sheer force of will, I was able to live up to those. But I think that was almost despite myself. Like, you know, had I been with boho parents, you know, maybe I would have been at like art camp or, you know, doing something else other than putting on a tie and going to the school where it was all about football and things that like didn't interest me. You know what I mean? So I was wearing somebody else's clothes for a long time. And, and I think that eventually caught up to me. So yeah, I guess in the concept of there always being some trauma present at the root of every addiction, maybe there's just different levels of trauma. And to the individual that's experiencing it, they're experienced as trauma, regardless of mm-hmm. if it was you know a dad that slaps you across the head when you walk in from school or a dad that's like, hey, you know we're counting on you to carry the family name, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, maybe there's different different levels of it. It's just something that I've observed, you know, and, and I totally agree that self-obsessing about, you know, if I can just figure out, you know, the day that I got hurt, then I'll be able to change my behavior today. That's not going to work right. either. You're, you're so right. I mean, you can go back and obsess on your childhood forever. I've seen many people do that and it really gets you nowhere. It's more like, well, how do I change what I'm doing now? But it's just, you know, I'm so curious, I guess, always having felt so different from non-alcoholic people my whole life. I'm just like, <laughs> why Why am I the way that I am? And why are people like me the way that we are? Why do we feel so uncomfortable? Why are we so sensitive? You know, it's like mm. the alcoholic just seems to feel things on a deeper level than a person who's not, A, and B, when an alcoholic feels those feels that discomfort alcohol or drugs does something to alleviate that discomfort that it doesn't do for other people yeah and that's that's what people don't realize about alcoholism and drug addiction and i'm sure there's a lot of people that listen to your show that that are not in recovery and so just to be clear if people don't really you know get exactly what you're saying Drugs and alcohol are not the problem, they're the solution. Like there is an underlying sense of dis-ease that the drugs and the alcohol alleviate, right? So this is the solution to the underlying problem. It ends up ultimately creating a lot of (laughs) additional problems and chaos. Like I said, it works until it doesn't, Um, but it's the cure, right? So when you take away the drugs and the alcohol and you're left with yourself, and this is a little bit about what we were talking about before the podcast, then you have to grapple with and, and, and wrestle with and reckon with who you are. And that's the real work, right? It's not just about removing the alcohol and the drugs. It's about the deep work within yourself to you know, repair what's broken. Oh my God. If it, if it were only that easy, if if you could be screwed up and just go to rehab and like get spun dry and pop out and be a great person, which is what I thought was going to happen. You know, I've heard it said that if you take a, uh, if you take a drunk horse thief and you get him sober, you know, what are you left with? Well, you're left with a sober horse thief, you know? So if you have a neurotic, insecure, terrified, 
person full of anxiety or resent resentments, hostility, anger, if you have a person who's operating on that level of consciousness and you remove the thing that's enabling them to live like that somewhat comfortably, then you've got a person with all those things just raging. And that's 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 was my experience. You know, right. it's like, God, getting sober initial periods, like, oh my God, I'm free. You know, it was like literally being a slave and being freed and then finding myself out in the woods going like, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm free, but I'm not free from the things that I was drinking over in the first place, right? And it's not a binary thing. Like the longer that I'm sober, and I'm sure this has been your experience as well, you realize like, oh, drugs and alcohol are like, you know, easily identifiable, you know, culprits, but it can be shopping, it can be food, it can be gambling, it can be uh, sexting. You know, I think what's going on right now with <laughs> with uh, Anthony Weiner is perfectly encapsulates it, right? So here he is again, like he did it again. And, you know, if you read the news, it's like the outrage, like people are just like, how could he possibly sext again when it destroyed his life and he had worked so hard to like repair it and all this sort of thing. And then here it is, it did it again. It's like, I look at that and I'm like, yeah, because he's an addict. Like there's something that's not healed inside of him. He can't help it. Like he is addicted to doing that and how awful and painful and lonely that must be for him. Of course, his wife and you know his family is gonna suffer tremendously as a result of this, but that's just horrible. Like I wouldn't wish that on anybody. So having been freed from drugs and alcohol myself and knowing and this, you know, I don't know how you can convey this to someone who hasn't had this experience, but something absolutely otherworldly happened to me. Something mystical, something magical happened that one day, poof, it was just gone. Whereas I'd had a lifetime of just like I said, just living like a slave. And after that initial freedom, what happened for me was exactly what you just described. It's going through a litany of other dopamine producing behaviors mm -hmm. to alleviate that discomfort and that pain that's still there, you know, using every form of repression and suppression to just tamp down any iota of negative feeling or emotion, you know? And so, you know, what have been some of the things that you've had to face and overcome? Like for me, a big one is my phone. I'm realizing now just, you know, to put myself out there to come clean. I, I'm like seriously, seriously addicted to my phone. Mm -hmm. I don't like get um, pushed emails. I finally stopped that. So that's good. It's not as distracting, but I constantly look at who's texted me. I constantly refresh Instagram mm -hmm. and I constantly look at the news feed on Twitter, you know, and it's just like, I literally can't leave my phone alone. And um, so that's my current demon. Now, is it destroying everyone's lives? And am I gonna lose my apartment and my family and you know my public respect if I have any? No, but it's like I'm losing something on the inside because I know I'm still being controlled and there's still something that I feel uncomfortable with that I'm running from. Right. You know, what are some of the things that maybe have haunted you that you've been able to overcome or or that you're still working on? Well, the phone is a big one for me too, you know, and as somebody, you know, like yourself, whose career is, is made online, it's very easy to rationalize the behavior and say, well, this is what I, this is my job, you know, I'm, I need to be online. I need to be, what am I posting next on Instagram or Facebook or, you know, what's the next tweet? Like, how can I say something that's going to get people to do what, I, you know, and you can really, you know, go to the wall with that. And so, 
I struggle with that as well, like trying to create boundaries around that and then constantly transgressing those boundaries that I set up for myself. So I'm certainly <laughs> not a case, a success case study on that. That's definitely a work in progress, but you know, it's, it's easy to identify like I'm being so alcoholic with my phone. Like I know I'm doing it. It's not a, it's not a matter of denial, but it's a matter of actually rectifying the behavior. And you know, this year I'm, I'm committed to, writing a book and in order to write a book, like you gotta carve out quiet time. Like you have to be able to reflect and read and write. And there's no room for, you know, constantly refreshing whatever social network you're on, right? So it's interesting because what you do is creative, right? And what I do is creative, but in order to tap into, um, you know, in order to maximize my creative output, I have to put distance between me and this device that I rely on for making a living. So it's tricky, you know? It's, and so it's this very is an tricky. ongoing, this is an ongoing, this is an ongoing thing for it's me. It's like people with, uh, with, you know, serious food disorders. Mm-hmm. I've always had so much compassion for because it's not like you, you have can to eat. You can't be abstinent. I mean, yeah. there's a very clear line between like me and alcohol. I'm not drinking. I was just texting with someone today and they're like, do you drink at all? You want to get a glass of wine? I was like, no, dude, <laughs> Like, right. I, I do not touch alcohol, you know? So that's very clear. But yeah, if you're making your living from your phone, which I, I totally relate to, that's a justification I always have is like, well, I mean, I have to post to Instagram. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I've got to build a following and this and that. And then I'll have the idea, oh, I could outsource it to someone. And then the control issues come of like hiring a social media manager. I'm like, right. they won't know my voice, man. You know, yeah. like, you know, it's like very hard to delegate something that's so personal, which is, you know, the content that you're discovering and sharing with the world, you know? Yeah. The control thing is a big one for me. And also, you know, like a good alcoholic, like I like to isolate, right? And I can rationalize my desire to isolate because I'm a writer, you know, or when I'm, you know, whatever I'm doing related to my work is solely reliant upon my creative output, right? So I need to go into the hole and like, you you know, nobody can talk to me and all that kind of stuff. And it's just artifice to prevent me from uh, connecting with other people. And, you know, I've grown what I'm doing to a point now where I have people in my life that, you know, I employ and that, that I work with and alongside. And I have to, it's been a journey for me to let go of my control issues and allow people in because I can't, you know, if I, if I hold on too tightly, I can't continue to grow, right? But it's like, yeah, nobody can do it like I can. Like all of that um, exceptionalism is not serving me. Yeah. Have you ever read the book, The E-Myth? No. Oh man, you got to get it. I think now it's The E-Myth Revisited. I think it stands for the entrepreneurial myth. And it's all about starting a business. You know, I think the example they use in the book, there's this narrative where they follow a lady that opens a bakery, you know, and it's like, it's doing really well. And she, you know, it's all her recipes and she does all the work and everyone comes in and they love her pastries and all this stuff. And then the business starts to grow and she wants to scale, but she's still in there sweeping the floor because she won't mm-hmm. get someone to sweep the floor, you know, is the basic idea of it. So that's it's totally me. The underlying, yeah. And the underlying principle is, are you working on your business? Or are you working in your business? Mm-hmm. In your business, meaning that you're you're a, a mechanic. You know, you're like on the line rather than being um, larger focused and working on you know the vision and the scope of it, right? Which is, I think, as an entrepreneur, because I have a, another business in addition to this new weird thing that I'm doing. And it's been so hard to let go. And I think it is. It's part of that like alcoholic control thing. Mm-hmm. Where it's like 
I, I know no one's going to do it right. I mean, there were years I was doing our customer service emails with my school. And right. it's like, people are like, uh, <laughs> dude, why are you doing, you know, you're like supposed to be Mr. CEO. Why are you doing customer service? I'm like, ah, you know, I don't want anyone getting bad service. And right. I, you know, I don't want to lose the, a sale. Because it's lose your name, right? Yeah. And you want to make sure that that email that they get reflects your sentiment on that issue. How could, how could somebody else possibly draft that email? Totally. But then the other side of it is like, well, you could be coming up with a new uh, retreat or a new piece of content or a new class. It's like to be able to find the things that you really excel at and and focus on those and delegate everything else. But it's it's really challenging. Mm-hmm. It's really challenging, especially when you have, you know, like I know looking at your stuff, all your branding, everything's super on point. Your website's very pretty. A lot of people in the health and wellness kind of industry I don't really identify with a lot of their branding and just kind of positioning and stuff. Your stuff's super tight. So I can tell like, and the quality, you know, your production value of your show and everything you put out is very high brow. It's very slick, which I appreciate just from a, you know, branding standpoint coming from the fashion industry. So I know it's got to be hard for you to let go of right. a lot of those <laughs> yes. details. You know, it's like, oh, the, you know, this yeah. font and this color yeah. and having the photos retouched. All and- down to that. Like I'm very particular about all of that stuff. And so that makes it even harder to, you know, remove myself and also what what makes it even harder is i know that that makes a difference right and i and i and i do pay attention to what other people are doing and i and i realize that part of why i've been able to get a foothold is because i pay extra attention to certain things that other people don't care about but i also watch them scale their businesses much more quickly than <laughs> right, I, you right, know what i mean totally totally and then yeah. and then i get resentful yeah right and this is that's insane yeah no it's good it's good stuff i love talking about this stuff i love sharing it and i want to come out you know come out of the closet here on something i have my my podcast covers for the art for the website and stuff and i still make them myself Uh because i just don't think anyone else is going to get the nuance of like the title of the show we're gonna we're recording today i'm gonna make one i'm gonna come up with a really clever hopefully title for this interview and i'll be sitting here like doing the graphic design for it and (laughs) and i'll and i'll see myself doing i'm like dude why are you doing this a someone could actually Actually do it way better than you who is a legitimate graphic designer uh-huh. a b why aren't you thinking of you know a way to start a new coaching program or scale you know this business actually make it into a business mm-hmm. which it currently kind of isn't it's like i put out free content people love it and it's fun but how about i make a retreat or something like that instead of right. laboring over like how much contrast <laughs> is going to be in a little podcast <laughs> tile that maybe no one's even going to see on twitter or something i'm you know? right with you though i yeah. get that i get that completely yeah but you know it is it's a fine line because the quality counts like i respect the work that you put out partially because I'm a visually oriented person. And when I see your stuff, I'm like, this guy's legit. He knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And I see some other work maybe that comes out and even, you know, the quality of the content might be all there, but if just, if the branding's tacky and the website sucks, I'm like, Mm -hmm. I won't give it its due respect based on that. And I'm not, you know, I'm not an anomaly. There's a lot of consumers I think that are also savvy and will give something um, credence if it looks and feels a certain way. Yeah, but I think behind all of it, the most important aspect of it, uh, you know, stripping away, like whether you're delegating your Photoshop work to somebody else or not, uh, is is the level of authenticity. Like, is this you? Like, am I getting a true representation of, you know, who you are? Or am I being pitched to? Am I being sold, right? And I think we're in a very interesting time 
with the internet and with health and the, the, the sort of advent and growth of wellness and businesses around wellness where, you know, there's a lot of people selling a lot of stuff, a lot of eBooks and a lot of sales funnels and all this kind of thing. And, and it's hard for me to like, you know, maybe a lot of that stuff's great, but I immediately tune out because it just doesn't feel real to me. When you, you know, when you know, you just you just ended up in someone's Infusionsoft funnel. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> you're going yeah, to, exactly. down the rabbit hole, you know, of the upsell, and you know it's coming. Yeah, the, and the, maybe I know too much about how all that stuff works because I can see it coming a million miles away from the initial email and the way it's phrased. Like I'm like, I know exactly what this is about, and like I immediately am like, I'm so not interested. Oh man, this did you cheat and like look over here at my notes because no. this is something I actually wanted to talk about, and it. It's going to dovetail into you know monetizing spirituality in a sense because some of the work that I put out is is very um, spiritually oriented, but just on that note of of marketing and sales, having being a few years behind where you are doing a very similar kind of thing, um, I struggle with this initially because it's like I don't want to be a cheesy marketing guy, and I want to be very honest and authentic about what I'm doing. And I really believe over the past 20 years, I've learned so much and I know the experts like you and other people personally, or I can find them. I'm, a, I'm good at you know getting people into a project and getting enthusiastic about it. So I know I can deliver the best content to people and they're going to benefit. But I do have this sense of guilt about like, studying marketing and figuring out how to build your email list and mm -hmm. clickbait and opt-ins and all this stuff that you kind of have to do in order to deliver the content to people and to be able to make a living off it. You know, it's like when I first learned um, Vedic meditation, it's similar kind of to TM and that you pay, you know, there's a pretty large fee for right. it. In Vedic, you pay like a week's pay. And so I shelled out some money to learn meditation. And there was a part of me that was like, this is not right. You should not have to pay for something spiritual, you know? And I, would, I wouldn't take it back, but it's like, well, the other side of it is that meditation teacher can't go work at Kinko's mm -hmm. to pay his bills because how's he going to teach a bunch of people to meditate? If I don't market something to my podcast listeners and build an email list and do whatever I'm going to do to make money, then I'm going to have to go to work and not be able to deliver people like you to the podcast podcast audience. So it's like, how have you come to, you know, a place within yourself where you feel good about selling a retreat or selling a book and putting great content out and knowing that you do have to market and that even though it might seem, you know, from one perspective, manipulative, right? Because you're having to use all this coercion and persuasion to get someone to buy, but what they're buying is probably going to change their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these are things that I think about all the time, all the time, and I've struggled with it and wrestled with it. You know, studying how other people do it and realizing that's not for me. I could never do that. Like I, I don't, you know, I don't have Infusionsoft. I wouldn't know how to create a sales funnel. Like I've kind of avoided all of that because that whole world like just turns me off and scares me to my detriment, I'm sure, because these things are just tools, right? It's all about your relationship to the tool and how you're using it. So, you know, are you using it? Like, are you are you choosing phrases in a clickbait way because you know you're gonna get, you're gonna trick somebody into, you know, pushing a button that ordinarily they wouldn't wanna push? Or are you just putting something out there? like? I'm not the best 
marketer. I wouldn't call myself, you know, an expert marketer in any stretch of the imagination. Like all I try to do is create the best content that I can and I'll try to spread it around. Um, but I, I come from a place of like, if it's, you know, if you build it, they will come. And, you know, I did my podcast for two years before there was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a business. It was something that I enjoyed doing. It's grown to the point now where I can monetize it and I do that with ads. And I still feel weird about doing ads, but I only do ads for products that I actually use. And yeah. this is just a reality of being in business. Like I wanna be able to continue doing the podcast. Now I have things that I would like to do and it has to be self-sustaining. And, and I had to get over that hurdle of feeling weird or bad about that. Like this is just the world that we live in and it's okay for me to you know, provide for my family while I'm putting out content that I know people enjoy and is helping them improve their lives. Like there's no shame in that, but I think it's the way in which you do it. And for me, it always comes back to integrity, honesty, and authenticity. Like I'm never gonna try to trick somebody into doing anything, you know, I'm just not going to. And maybe I won't grow as fast or I won't be able to build some crazy huge email list. Like I only started emailing people like recently. I didn't even pay attention to like an email list until like a year ago. You know, I don't have some crazy wow. huge list. And, wow. and, and, you know, again, that's, you know, maybe I would be doing much better had I, you know, employed some of these strategies that work, you know, those, those, all that stuff in that world of Infusionsoft and all of that, it's highly effective, but I have to be able to go to sleep at night feeling good about what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Totally, and, and I'm, totally. and so I have a very, long-term view of what I'm doing. And I think what that has translated into is slow progressive organic growth as opposed to, you know, blowing out some email list and and you know sending out tons of emails with affiliate links and all that kind of stuff. Like I just don't really do that. I put out an email every week that this is my latest podcast guest and I just started actually like 7 weeks ago sending out a, a second email that's just um, kind of like Tim Ferriss's uh, email, it's called, I call it roll call, but it's basically just a couple things that I came across over the course of the last week that I thought were cool. And that's it, you know, and I'm not trying to sell anybody anything. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is like a, a balance that you kind of have to find because, you know, that's why I'm asking you the question because it's something I sort of struggle with in, in the example of my fashion school. We do all of the email marketing stuff and you know, are pretty effective at doing it. We actually just switched to Infusionsoft, which mm -hmm. is probably why it's on my mind. It's a freaking nightmare trying, trying to learn that stuff. Yeah, but to, it's the whole thing. You have it's to like, like spend a ton of money to get it and you have to be trained. <laughs> like it's a whole thing, no, it's, right? It's next, dude, don't even get me started. <laughs> yeah. But here's the, here's the thing though. I absolutely want to um, influence people that want to be a fashion stylist to get on my email list. I'm going to send them a series of emails. I'm going to get them on a webinar. On the webinar, I'm going to try to get them to sign up for the class. They're going to sign up for the class, but you know what, dude? They're going to show up at that class and it's going to change their life. As long and, as you're over-delivering, you know, oh, I think dude, it's good. Yeah. And I so, mean, I, you know, I've, I've literally been, you know, I won't say I've launched careers because of course we know that I'm not God, but I mean, I have hundreds of students that are in a career because they came and took that class. So it's mm. like, on that side of the business, it's much easier for me because I'm like, all right, kid, you just need to get in my class. Like, I know your dream is to work in fashion and I and my school know how to do that for you. So I got to put you through all these hoops to get you to get your credit card and go on my website <laughs> and take the damn class. Once mm -hmm. you get in there, you're good to go. And I know we're going to make it happen for you. And the value of the class is at least 10 times what they're paying for it. So I feel like 
absolutely in integrity. I feel very good about it. But in this space, what I was getting at that's interesting, and, I, and I'm really benefiting from your approach, is that you know, a lot of the stuff I'm doing is a little bit more of the spiritual side. You know, it's like I wanted to be all about health and wellness. And it's like, well, that's just to me like the tip of the iceberg. It's more about the inner game and, you know, kind of coming out about sobriety and talking about recovery and things that are more meaningful to me than like if goji berries are good for you. Like mm-hmm. at a point, right? It's like cool, superfoods, herbs. Like people email me these questions. I'm like, dude, I've been into that stuff 20 years ago. I'm not, you know, it's just you're not going to fix it with reishi mushrooms. It's cool like to get into that stuff, but like, let's talk about meditation and self-love and, and, you know, just the deeper stuff. So it's like, my content's going to be more geared toward that. So I have a real problem, like mixing spirituality and money. I have a mental block sort of around that. Well, I I mean, maybe this might be uh, helpful to you. If you take a more macro, like words are tricky, right? you know, the words that we use to describe things are important, but they can also fuck us up. If you take a more macro perspective of the word spiritual or remove the word spiritual from it altogether and understanding that everything is spiritual and everything is energy, just because you're attaching this word spiritual to it, that just the connotation of that word starts to make you feel weird about mixing (laughs) it with business. But the truth is like, you're providing something, right? So label it as you will or choose not to label it. And if you're providing value, then there's nothing wrong with being remunerated for that, right? So it's okay, man, whether it's goji berries or Vedic meditation, it's value, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and goji berries can be a Trojan horse for spiritual principles, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because yep. the thing is like a lot of people their, you know, the the hair on their back starts to go up if you start moving into the spiritual realms. And they do want to believe, like it's like that phrase in recovery, like the persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Like people want to believe that if they eat this one thing or they just get that one workout regimen, you know, that that's gonna make all the difference. And they're overlooking the fact that there is some something ill at ease inside of them that is attracted to this message that you're putting out there, they might not be ready to hear about the deep interior work that's gonna be required to, to resolve that for them. So they're, they're looking at the goji berry, right? And you can take that question about the goji berry and then use that to then go, all right, well, we'll do that and I'll answer that question, but like maybe look over here too, you know? And I kind of approach my podcast in, in a similar way because it is funny, like after a while, it's like, well, where do you get your protein? And like all these kind of questions, like it can be, it can, it can be, I can choose to perceive that as a drag, but if somebody's asking a question, they're seeking for something, right? And they may not be consciously aware of what exactly it is that they're after, but that's an opportunity for you to crack that seal and maybe go a little bit deeper. That's beautifully said, yeah. Because if someone's, they're looking, <laughs> you know, to get the answer about the protein, but really what's the higher goal that they have? The real the and they real, may not be consciously aware of that. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. The desire they have is what to feel good, to be mm-hmm. fulfilled, you right. know? And so it's like, yeah, I, I love, that's a great analogy of the Trojan horse that sure, we can get caught up in the lifestyle stuff and the dietary and exercise, and it's all good. I mean, you can't function, try meditating with a head full of aspartame and MSG, like good luck. Yeah. You know, I mean, it is all mind, body, spirit, but but it's true. Um, I think that you can kind of... Um, 
you know, maybe reel someone in who has a, somewhat of a more superficial inquiry and then find out what's really at the root of that is a desire that we all have, which is to be fulfilled and to have energy and focus and happiness right. and, you know, all those kind of things. One observation that I have that I've, that I've kind of developed over the years is, you know, I kind of, you know, I became this plant-based person, like I'm, you know, sort of the plant-based athlete guy. And I go to a lot of events that are kind of vegan themed where I speak. And you'll notice like a lot of people are like, they're just super into like, you know, the kale, right? Like what kind of kale is that? And what kind <laughs> of kale do you use? And what kind of, and, and that's great. Like people who have adopted this new lifestyle and they're very um, energetic and enthusiastic about it. But as somebody who's, you know, been sober for a while, like yourself, like sobriety is about perpetual, persistent evolution and growth, right? There's nothing static about sobriety. You're either moving towards a drink or you're moving towards, uh, you know, a, a state of higher consciousness in every decision that you make, every thought that you entertain, every action that you take. And, and, and I really take that to heart, like I'm trying to evolve. And I think it would be very easy for me to just remain the vegan athlete guy and talk about kale. But like, I'm, I was like, that's boring. There's plenty of other people that can do that. Like, I wanna continue to grow. Like, how can I take my experience and broaden it a little bit and bring some of these other concepts into it that really are, you know, more important <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. And, and I think we're more integral in my personal transformation than the smoothie recipe, you know? And I'm sure as somebody like yourself, who's been to a lot of these conventions and conferences and you see people that get very stuck on these, these very isolated singular concepts, but they're myopic about the bigger picture. Yeah, totally. Well, that, that kind of leads me into another line of questioning too, is having been someone like you that's you know been into personal development and just becoming better, you know, like you said, always constantly evolving um, in sobriety. And there were years where I was really focused on all the supplements and vitamins and colonics and cleansing and fasting and sweat lodges. And I mean, in my episode number one, uh -huh. for anyone that ever wants to listen to it, I list about like 150 crazy things that I've done just to feel better, you know? And so I think what happens is at different points in your evolution, the goji berries were a huge discovery, you know, yeah. Chinese medicine. And then, you know, you kind of move through that and then you find something deeper. But what's happened to me along the way, and I've noticed a lot of people, especially on one end of the spectrum in the vegan world and the other end of the spectrum in your, you know, caveman, CrossFit, paleo crew is all of the inherently neurotic dogma and rigid beliefs around like the food you eat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I like kind of, you know, in a somewhat judgmental way, look at those people who are still at that phase in their evolution. And then my friends will remind me like, yeah, dude, that was you five years ago, you know, who'd be the one at the dinner table. Hey, you really want to order that? Wow. Did you know that blah, 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 you know, right. like I was the a-hole not so long ago uh, that thought that, you know, I had it all figured out. But um, so there's, there's the part of it where, you know, I'm identify. it's an ego trip. It's like, I'm identifying who I am based on the kind of food I eat, you know? And, uh, and that's, to me, is a real trap. It's a sticking point where mm -hmm. you could be like, I am a this, I am a that. It's like, the way I look at it now is, dude, I'm not even a body, let alone the stuff that goes in the body. Now I'm conscious about the stuff that goes in the body, but I can't have such a limited perspective of myself as like, I'm a paleo or I'm a vegan. And that's, you know, how I relate to the world because 
there's so much more to me that I want to be able to share and develop, you know? Yeah, unfortunately, the human brain is so intent upon categorizing everything, right? Uh, we want to make these snap judgments. This is bad, this is good, you know, this this diet is this. What's, what's the term or label we're going to apply to this? And then we use that to, you know, either feel better about ourselves or worse about ourselves, but ultimately to divide ourselves, right? To separate ourselves from other people. Uh, and I think part of that is our inherent desire to create clans or, you know, like groups that we can have a sense of belonging to. But ultimately, you know, a lot of those tendencies tend to have really negative impacts, right? So whether it's the vegans versus the paleos or, or you know, the infighting that exists within the vegan community, which is insane. You know, oh, all, really? Uh, I didn't even know about oh, that. Well, there's all these subcategories and subcultures within it. Oh, so is it like- yeah. Well, it, the, the, the paleo community is pretty much, the analogy I always use is like, prior to this whole Trump era, you know, the Republicans were always very organized, right? They always had their talking points and they were always on message. And the Democrats, uh, we're always shooting themselves in the foot because they're arguing with each other about what their message should or should not be. And that's kind of like the vegans <laughs> and the and the Republicans are like the paleos. Like the Dude, paleos, like they know they know what their perspective is and they're always on that. You know what I mean? That's and an amazing that's an amazing analogy. That's okay. Yeah. I'm loving this. I'm loving so this. the vegans are always, yeah, there's like the fruitarians and then there's the high carb vegans and then there's the David Wolf people and like all kinds of stuff that you know, whatever, that's a whole other side conversation. Yeah. But I think the, the point that I'm trying to make is that with all of that, we judge each other, right? I just did a podcast with my wife that I'm putting up this weekend. It's all, that's all about non-judgment, you know, and, and how can we, you know, wh where, when is it appropriate to judge and when is it not? And, you know, ultimately the conclusion is when you take a 10,000 foot view on everything, we're just, you know, it's just not that important, right? And and who am I? I don't have enough information or perspective to judge anybody else's journey, you know, or let alone try to make myself feel better about criticizing where somebody else is at. So, you know, I just see myself as somebody who's had an experience and to the extent that people are interested in that, I'm, I'm happy to share it, but it's not for me to tell anybody what they should or they should not do or to say that my lifestyle is better than anyone else's. Yeah, that's a that's such a healthy approach and so refreshing. You know, having been around the various circles for for a long time, mm -hmm. and like I said, myself being totally guilty when I think I found the magic answer to whatever, then everyone else who's not doing that is wrong, right? You know, but but that's so um, especially like yeah, you you discover that, and then you're just constantly posting on whatever social network about it, and you're like, dude, a week ago you were like, you know, yes, and now you're judging everyone else because they're not seeing the world the way that. You you are, but you know, this was just a recent epiphany for you. It's a very mature viewpoint that you're expressing, and I appreciate it. Uh, one of my all-time favorite spiritual teachers, uh, Mr. David Hawkins, he wrote a book most famously um, called Power Versus Force, but it's one of my least favorite of his books. He has a lot of other amazing ones. Um, but I have a lot of his lectures, just hours and hours and hours and hours of his lectures, and I went to see him a couple times, and he's just my guy. You know, you have your guy, that's my guy. And he talked his, he was all about non, uh, non-devotional duality. And so he's always talking about this positionalities of the mind. And one of the best phrases that he used along the lines of what you're talking about is just because you like chocolate doesn't mean you have to hate vanilla. Mm -hmm. It's like, 
can't you just like chocolate? I like chocolate. <laughs> you know, it's like there's nothing against the vanilla crowd, you know, and it's such a um it's it feels so much better inside to just live in that place, a true uh, position of live and let live. Mm-hmm. Where it's just not just you're saying that, but you really mean it. Mm-hmm. And on that on that judgmental tip, it's such a trap because you know, isn't the ego just kind of waiting in the wings for an opportunity to be right? Of course. You know, it's just like, yeah. it's just poised, like, ah, just give me one chance to call them wrong and for me to be right, you know? And there's a certain juice to that self-righteousness that is so tempting. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things that I think you can wean yourself off and maybe differentiate a judgment between an observation, you know? Like I might observe someone who's eating tons of fast food still and they're kind of lost in the, you know, in the um, abyss of that, you know, commercial food matrix and observe like, wow, that person looks really unhealthy. I have compassion for them, but not to put myself in a higher position. It's just an observation that may or may not be correct based on my perspective. And you, you have no idea what's going on with that person's life. No idea. Yeah. You know, so leave it alone. You know what I mean? It, it goes back to that annoying sobriety adage, you know, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, I think that originated in a course in miracles, if I'm oh, not did mistaken. It? That, yeah, that and that's um, that actually changed my life. It is it is one of those cliches that you you hear too much, mm-hmm. but that's saved my ass in many moments where I'm building a case against someone in my mind and realizing that I'm very unhappy. Right, but there's know? nothing better than building a case against somebody <laughs> else. It's like, oh, that's what I mean. There is a so certain, good. There is a certain satisfaction yeah. in being right, but there's a price to pay. There's a hangover for mm-hmm. it. You know, it's just it's another drug. That ego, you know, inflation. The payoff is there, but the price is also there as well. Mm-hmm. So, God, we've covered a lot of really good stuff. I think like inadvertently we got to a lot of the things on my list. Something I did want to talk about was just in terms of. Um, you know, the the deeper work and the lifestyle stuff. What what are your spiritual practices? You know, other than just the the general principles we've covered, you know, what are you doing in terms of meditation and prayer or reading spiritual literature? What is your kind of, you know, day-to-day householder's spiritual life look like? Yeah, that that's always kind of evolving. Um, it's not a static thing, but I would say in general. First, I would say sleep is really important. You know, I sleep, I need like seven or eight hours, you know, and as I get older, like I'm turning 50 this year, um, when I'm not training super hard, which I'm not doing right now, sleep gets tricky for me. Um, So my evening routine of sort of cycling down has become much more important to me and and kind of creating that kind of sacred space for sleep. And one of the the things that I've been doing is... uh, for the last like eight months or so, six months maybe, um, I've been sleeping on, we have a flat roof on our house. I put a tent on it and I've been sleeping on the roof. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, because uh, I noticed that I, the quality of my sleep is 10X'd by the cold air. And and uh, my wife doesn't like like the room to be too cold. Like she likes it a little bit warmer. And so for a while, there was some friction, like she would be freezing, you know, if I got my way or I would lay there sweating on top of the sheets while she's underneath all the covers, not able to sleep. And it was creating like problems with our marriage and and really interfering with my sleep. So I was like, screw it, I'm getting a tent. And she's like, okay, cool. <laughs> I got a tent. <laughs> it's like literally in the doghouse. I, I know, like, yeah. yeah, it's funny. <laughs> and I put like a... Uh, 
twin mattress in it and it's just out there. And like literally from the first night of sleeping out there, I had the best night of sleep. And I was like, this is unbelievable. You know, so I've, I've been doing that for a while. That's, so that's a big part of my routine. Now, I, I want to I want to interject ahead. before we get into the rest of the routine and in the event that I can't remember to come back to this. I've noticed if I go camping, I sleep like a beast. Mm-hmm. And it's not only the cold. I think there's something to be said about just being out in the yeah, night the air. air and being in nature and not being in this domicile. But I, w- I want to just give you a tip, and I can show you when we're when we're done recording, uh, for sharing space with your significant other, because I've noticed the same exact thing multiple with multiple partners uh, that I want. I literally want the room like 66, 67 degrees, like freezing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know. It's a female thing. I don't know. It just seems to be the case. Uh, well, I don't sleep with other males. Maybe some males like it colder mm-hmm. too or warmer too, but there's always friction there. So um, I found this company who makes something called a chili pad. I heard about this. Dude, it's yeah. sick. So you can get, it's it's basically like an electric blanket, but there's no wires or EMFs or anything weird in it. It's just like a thin sort of pad that has these veins of water in it. And then there's a little condenser that cools or heats the water. So each partner can have their own little condenser that just sit kind of beside the bed. And then, you know, in the morning, you just tuck them under the bed. They're about like a foot square. And uh, what it does is it makes the surface of your bed freezing cold or hot Mm -hmm. to the temperature that you desire. So you could literally be like in bed with your wife. She could have her thing set to 90 degrees and you can have yours set to 59. Mm -hmm. And you don't feel what's going on on the other side. And I got to tell you, since I got that, not only do I sleep a lot better, but my AC bill like went from, you know, $150 a month to whatever. It's like cut it in half. Cause I only keep, I keep the AC on like 72 or 73 in case it gets crazy hot in the room, but I pretty much don't need AC cause I'm laying on that freezing pad. So I'm going to check that out. You're not the first person to recommend that to me. So that's, that's really cool. Yeah. It's, it it's sweet. I'll, I'll show it to you and give you the link. But anyway, that that's been my sleep hack because mm-hmm. the temperature, I had no idea how shitty my sleep was for so long just because I was overheating. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that's why I was waking up. You don't really know. If you're not covered in sweat, you don't realize how much you're overheating. And then I had this really like fancy natural merino wool um, comforter because it doesn't get dust mites and it's non-toxic and it's all organic. I had that thing for years. And then I was like, I wonder what happened if I just get my old like probably toxic, like, you know, um, a synthetic filled little comforter from 10 years ago. And I started sleeping with that. And on my sleep app, I went from like a 70 to a 90 instantly. Hmm. So I, even with the chili pad, I was still overheating because I had this really, you know, high quality, thing, but right. thick um, wool thing. So the temperature is massive. I digress, carry on to your routine. Yeah. So anyway, the bottom line, sleep's super important. Yeah. And I do my best not to skimp on that. Um, my morning routine uh, upon uh, getting up, I always do immediately like a little reading from a secret text that we both know about. <laughs> and then I do uh, meditation. Um, I've been using the Headspace app recently and I really enjoy that. Uh, so 20 minutes of meditation in the morning. Is and the Headspace app, I, I've heard of it, but is that like a guided meditation? Yeah, it's it's packed with all kinds of guided meditations. Oh, cool. that, yeah, it comes with like 10 free ones, but then if you like get the subscription, there's all kinds of different kinds of meditation techniques on there, uh, you know, that, and they, they specify them for different purposes as well. So 
Um, that just makes it easy for me. I don't always use the app. I mean, I've been doing it long enough that I can do it without that, but I'm, I'm not vedically trained or anything like that. Um, so I do that and then I'll do a gratitude list or some journaling. Uh, you know, sometimes it's like the morning routine can turn into like this two hour thing. If you're not careful, it's like, well, then you do this and then you do that. And there's like a lot of talk about morning routines and it can be very overwhelming. So, um, you know, in general, like, the meditation and the gratitude list are like the non-negotiable ones. And then if I have more time, like uh, I'm a big fan of the artist way. So morning pages are, you know, a great tool that I've, that I've uh, gotten a lot out of for many, many years. So I still try to maintain that practice. And I, I go in spurts. I'll do that for a while and then I don't. But if I'm getting ready for a creative project or I'm feeling particularly blocked, then I invest more of my energy and time in that. And then, uh, you know, tea in the morning and then I work out. Like I try not to schedule, I'm self-employed, so I don't have to, you know, I have the good fortune of not having to drive to an office or anything like that to show up for a boss. But I do my best to not schedule any like phone calls or meetings or anything like that in the morning hours. And I use that as my training time. So that's usually a trail run or a ride or I go to the pool and I try to set that time aside until noon. So. That's my time usually alone on a trail, which is like an active meditation, unless I'm listening to a podcast or something like that. But that's like my time to take care of myself. And then the afternoons are, you know, work, doing podcast stuff and whatever else that I do. That's cool. You just you just described a life very similar to mine. Mm. <laughs> are you inherently not a morning person? Does that have something to do with why you don't like to schedule stuff earlier? Or is it just purely to allow yourself that time to, you know, do self-care? I actually am a morning person. I love the morning and my most productive creative time is in the morning. And that's why I'm, uh, you know, adamant about not compromising that and giving that energy over to somebody else because they decided they wanted to have breakfast or, you know, do a conference call, like things that don't have to happen at that time of day. I don't schedule for that time of day. And I I try to be really rigorous about that because I know like by the time it's four or five o'clock in the afternoon, like I'm not a night owl. Like I like to go to bed early. I'm kind of spent, you know, so I can use when I'm, when I'm less alert and less creative, you know, when I'm in that kind of down cycle time, that's when I can do emails and phone calls and all that kind of stuff. But that precious, those precious morning hours where I, I know that my output is, maximized i want to use that for you know my own personal projects that's really good self-knowledge yeah i've been playing around with with that stuff personally i'm a um a night person historically but you're so right how the morning routine (laughs) it's like you know when 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 you truly are and you know you said this word is baited and you're right there's just no other way to say it but when in my case, out of necessity, not virtue, I am a spiritual person. I'm living a spiritual life. I'm oriented in that way. My my whole vibe is to go inside and and grow. But it's it is risky because you can end up spending three, four, five hours of the first part of your day just zoning out and meditating mm-hmm. and doing all this great stuff. But Sometimes there's work to do too. I know. You know, it's something I've struggled with. We live, with. we live in the world. We don't live in a cave. You yeah. know, we live in the world. And so I think that then it becomes about being uh gracious with yourself and not trying to hold yourself to some kind of crazy perfectionist standard. Uh and understanding that you're you know, you're fallible and you're not gonna do it perfectly and all of that. But I think, you know, spiritual spiritual practice is about boundaries. And a big part of meditation is learning how to be responsive rather than reactive, right? And we're in a culture, we were talking about our phone addictions earlier. Like 
most people are just reacting to life around them 99% of the time throughout their day. Like the phone rings, you answer it. Well, you don't have to answer the phone just because someone's calling you. You know, you don't have to check your phone immediately upon waking up. Like we do all these things that are just kind of inbred into us, but part of my evolution is understanding like, oh, I have a choice around these things and I can create some healthy boundaries around them. And when I do that and I and I hold up my end of that bargain, then my life functions much better. I'd like to ask you about prayer specifically. You know, in the sort of personal development and podcast sphere now, there's a lot of talk about meditation. Meditation is not this woo-woo spooky thing that I think it used mm-hmm. to be. It's it's very mainstream and very trendy. Everyone meditates. I mean, just look on Instagram, you know, and you see a lot of people at least simulating a meditation, you know, in their posts. And it's it's like yoga, which is great. It's great that the world, you know, has made meditation and yoga trendy. But what about, you know, what about your actual relationship for whatever you know you have going with that thing that people call God? You know that the actual prayer time. What what does that look like for you? Is it something that's set aside, or is it an ongoing kind of communication? And is that even you know part of your your life? It's it's the most important part of my life. You know, we are spiritual beings having a physical experience, and I truly believe that. And you know, my life has been transformed by really, um, you know, embodying that ethos. Uh, I don't do it in a dogmatic sense. I'm not religious and I don't belong to a church, but I very much believe in a higher power. And I know that this physical incarnation is just a small aspect of consciousness. And I think that infuses my uh, life with a sense of humility uh, that grounds me. And so prayer is a big part of that. You know, I pray in the morning and then throughout the day, like, you know, the serenity prayer is a big one for me. Um, but I have a couple prayers that, you know, I like to kind of use as mantras. So yeah, it's super important to me. And it's interesting because this is still a sensitive, you know, almost taboo subject to talk about. It's all cool now to talk about meditation because meditation has been foisted into the mainstream by virtue of you know scientific studies that legitimize it. But we were talking about you know the power of words earlier, and it's interesting to watch the terminology around meditation change because now it's all about getting into a flow state, you know, which is like which is cool, and like people can get like dudes can get behind that, right? So it's bringing more people yeah. into it because like everyone's down with the flow state, but these it's, are con- it's bro spirituality. Yeah, 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 but these are concepts that have been around for millennia, right? So it's like, part of me is like, call it what it is, man. You know, but but I also understand that by changing that, you know, changing the language around it has created an open door for a lot of people, and I think that's really cool. But I don't think that we're there, quite there yet when it comes to ideas around God and prayer. You know, but for me personally, and I'm only talking about my own personal experience, it's been transformational and it's extremely important to me. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, it's it's one of those things like I was telling you earlier with just the fact that I'm a sober guy, it was really difficult for me to kind of come out publicly and do that for whatever. I, I had some shame about that. And I find the same thing with being a person whose life is literally devoted to God. I mean, there's just no other way to say it. I mean, that is the purpose of my life. And I am also not in any way religious. 
Mm-hmm. I've never been a member of any kind of religion. I've only been in churches a couple times. I I don't identify as anything, you know, and I've studied a lot of stuff, been to India, done all kinds of different things and appreciate many of the principles from religion. But for me, it's like a life or death thing. If I don't relate my life to whatever it is that created me on an ongoing basis and go deeper and deeper with that, I'm just not happy. You know, mm-hmm. it's like I cannot find a way to be happy in and of myself. Like when you were saying that, you know, all the great ideas that you had and all the best planning and, you know, all your will ended up handing you a life that was very unfulfilling. I mean, that's my experience as a sober guy who's doing the best I can. If I don't have, you know, a source of strength that's above and beyond my own personal limited strength, I, I just, my life is not good. It's not fulfilling. Right. And so I'm, I'm becoming, you know, I guess less embarrassed and apologetic about that. It's like, dude, you know what? If someone is at a point in their life where, you know, the word God scares them or, or they're, you know, they're threatened by that or they are an atheist or agnostic or whatever it is, it's like, I totally respect that. But at the same time, I can no longer uh, deny the benefits and the results that I'm getting. It's like the scientific studies for meditation. I have my own way to quantify subjectively what happens when I'm in a certain state of emotion or mind. And then I say, oh yeah, there's this God thing. I don't really know what it is, but I'm going to make an effort to be with it and communicate with it and ask it to guide me and to help me, whatever that looks like. I don't even have prayers memorized. It's just like, hey, you thing, energy, would you be with me right now? I'm scared mm-hmm. shitless because Rich Roll's coming over to my house and he's like this big health guy you know, or whatever. You know what I'm saying? It's like any little thing that crosses my mind, any anxiety, any going on a date. I mean, there's just weird stuff like that. Um, worrying about money problems, just something that I know in and of myself I can't handle. I have to find a connection to something that helps me to see things in a realistic perspective to keep things right size because I just can't do it in and of myself. Yeah, that's beautifully said. You know, I think that we are here to grow, right? And if you devote yourself to that process, to personal growth, then that's gonna lead you into service. And that growth curve will evolve into, you know, probing higher consciousness. You know, that is the uh, extrapolation of that curve. And when you do that, you become a happier person, you know? So you can spend your life chasing shiny things, but we both live in Hollywood and we both know, you know, super rich, wealthy people that are miserable. And, you know, I don't wanna be that person, you know? So when I am, all I know is that when I'm focused on cleaning house and serving others, my life works, you know, it works. Like the drama goes away conflicts get resolved, doors swing wide open, all kinds of crazy stuff happens. This weird spiritual equation takes over and it's very real, it's not imagined. Like I know that the more that I spend my time and my energy focused on being of service to other people, other things in my life just get resolved and work out. Well, so, so why, why is yeah. that? You know, Why does that happen? And I choose to believe that that is because there are higher forces at work that are invisible to our perceptions. And we think we're so arrogant as human beings. We think we can understand everything, you know, but our brains are, you know, it's like, who said that our brains are the ultimate evolution, right? Like you can 
take a snake and spend your entire life trying to get it to understand, you know, one word in the English language and it's never going to get there. The most elementary thing for us. So, you know, what take that idea and extrapolate upon that and understand that, you know, our brains are limited. We're incapable of perceiving, you know, certain light bandwidths and all kinds of things that are happening around us. So, have a little humility and appreciate the fact that there's a lot more going on that we're just not aware of, you know? And I think when you do that, not only does it alleviate a little stress <laughs> in your life, but it puts things into perspective for me. That's awesome, man. That's a really great note to end on. And speaking of service, I wanna thank you for being of service to me by donating your time so graciously today and also for our audience. And um, it's been just fantastic sitting down and having to talk with you. And I'm glad that it didn't turn into like a formal interview because we were chatting in the living room and I was like, oh, I wish we were recording and all that. And it's like, no, it's a continuation of that. Right. And I, I find that this is, people seem to really respond to this and it's it's a much more natural way to kind of communicate. All right, where, when were you born? And it's mm -hmm. like, you know, there's the like, the rote kind of interview is so boring. I love being able to sit down with someone who's kind of on the same page and be able to dive into this stuff. So I want to sincerely thank you for for your time. Thanks, Luke. This was uh, this was cool, man. This was this was we went deep. I think it was good, man. I, and I really appreciate you creating the space for us to do that. So awesome. Thank you. So, in closing, I want to ask you one question. So, you've come here and taught us some stuff based on your own experience, and uh, for lack of a better term, you are our teacher today as our guest star. Who are some teachers or teachings that have influenced you? I'd love to get three teachers, books, experiences that you've had mm. that you might be able to point people toward. Let's see. Uh, a great book is Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda, the founder of the uh, Self-Realization Fellowship here in Los Angeles. I've probably read that book four times. It's amazing for anybody interested in the yogi tradition. It will blow your mind. So that's a good one. Uh, you know, then there's the obvious Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now. You know, that was, that's been very transformational in my life. And we kind of touched on some of the subject matters that that are brought up, um, you know, in his work. Uh, let's see who else would be good. You know, you're talking about teachers. We talked on. We talked a little bit about marketing today, and I think somebody who's been uh, maybe um, a non-obvious uh, teacher for me has been Gary V. Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk, who I love. <laughs> that guy's. I just appreciate his energy, you know, which is very different from mine. And I don't necessarily see eye to eye with him on everything, but I like his take on entrepreneurship and uh, devotion to process. You know what I mean? Like we were talking about adding value, you know, and he's big about that. Like just always be adding value. How can you add more value? And then the more value you're adding, then the understanding kind of implicit in his message also is that, it's okay to ask people to buy this other thing if you're providing value you know, in, in the course of doing that. And so his messaging has been instructive in how I've kind of constructed my business. Absolutely, me too. I, I'll second that emotion for sure. Yeah, that concept of 
you know, give nine and then ask for the 10th. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? It's like the ratio of giving to asking is one thing that he really has down. Yeah, I appreciate that too. And that's funny because I would never put you and him in the same room. It's like, oh, they're probably homies. Yeah. You know, it's like- I had them on my podcast. <laughs> I know, yeah. I know you did. Yeah, yeah. But that's, oh. that's great. That's a really kind of um, left field recommendation, but that is great. Because he's he's really a pioneer in the in the marketing industry too. I mean, he's doing something very different than that has been done before and has kind of created a whole new- approach to that. So yeah, that's very and cool. And I appreciate his boundless energy, you know. I know the guy's a force of nature. How does he do it? And something <laughs> something tells me he's not like, you know, an organic paleo farm to table or a raw vegan or anything special. I have a feeling that guy's just eating normal food and still has that energy. Yeah. Well he only started paying attention to his health like a year ago and then he hired a personal trainer guy to follow him around oh, all he the did? time and tell him what to eat and stuff. But I think he just he came out of the gate just gunning. You know, like that's he's just genetically wired for that yeah cool all right man well thanks so much for coming by today we're gonna sign off i'll go show you the chili pad (laughs) look into that and uh, we'll see you on the next one man all right man thanks luke You know what? I got to just say, I love my life. I get to sit down and talk to some of the most amazing minds in the world, people uh, for whom I have such respect and I learned so much from and I'm so inspired and Rich Roll was no exception. I'm so excited that I got to share this interview with you guys. But now, unfortunately, the episode is coming to a close. I want to remind you to go to lukestory.com forward slash winner and enter my sweet contest. Again, you have the opportunity to win not only a one-hour coaching session with me, but also a one-month supply of my custom Bulletproof coffee recipe. This recipe changed my life. It's going to have a huge impact on your health and your energy. So I can't wait to announce the winner on September 21st. But remember, you've only got until the 19th to enter. So just do it right now. Go to lukestory.com forward slash winner. Enter your name and email, done, super easy. Then all you have to do is just wait around for an email from us saying, ding, 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 you won. So thanks again for joining me. And I would also like to remind you, if you'd like to support the show, you can go to lukestory.com forward slash support. You can make a small pledge, throw in a few bucks to help keep this thing on the tracks every month. It takes a lot of work, a lot of people, a lot of money to do this. Anything you can do to help would be so greatly appreciated at lukestory.com forward slash support. And I look forward to bringing you another episode next week. See you Tuesday. Did you like this podcast? Well, I got one better for you. Why don't you come down to the Bulletproof Coffee Shop in downtown LA next Thursday, September 22nd to kick off the Bulletproof Conference. I've got an amazing free party going on and you get to see me record a live podcast on the show Zestology. As I said before, it's free, but you do need to RSVP. You can't just roll up, okay? So go to my Facebook page at Mr. Luke Story and get yourself signed up. You'll see a post about it over there. Super easy. Can't wait to meet you all there.